Thanks for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jacob Scrimshaw, the Discipleship Pastor here at Rolling Hills. We are so glad that you've joined us today as we continue our series, Finish Strong. Today you'll hear from Pastor Nick as he teaches us from Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Now here's Pastor Nick. I'm really glad that you're here today, and I'm glad that we get the chance to open up this word this morning, because I do believe um, that this word um, speaks a truth to us that we can't get anywhere else, Um, that it speaks an encouragement to us that we can't find anywhere else, Um, that it challenges us in ways that we can't experience anywhere else. And it's only when we come back to this word and, and understand it as truth and are ready to apply it to our lives can we truly experience the fullness of God. Augustine said that if we believe only what we like about Scripture, I've said this before, if we believe only what we like about Scripture and reject what we don't like, it's not the Scripture that we believe, it's ourselves. And so we're going to dive in deep this morning to a passage of Scripture that's a little bit difficult coming off of the heels of where we were last week. My name is Nick Allen. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, I get to be the campus pastor of this location. And it's a joy and a privilege and an honor to stand in this space and open up this word. We've been in the book of Joshua, diving into truths from the Old Testament and experiencing the reality of what they say to us even today. And last week was a victory chapter where from kids' Bibles all over the world, we celebrate the Battle of Jericho where Joshua and uh, the army marched around the city, you know, six times, like once each day for six days. And on the seventh day, they marched around like seven times. And they shouted with loud shouts and blue trumpets. It was like the first recorded instance of a marching band in all of history. And then the walls came tumbling down. We celebrate the goodness of what God did in that moment. I have been married to Susan for 20 years as of this summer. And I know you're thinking, well, they must have gotten married when they were 14. Well, we did. Um, because we're young. No, I'm just kidding. We're old enough to have been married for 20 years and we celebrate that. And God has blessed us with three amazing kids, the oldest of which who will turn 14 years old this month. And so we're lamenting the fact that kids grow up fast and celebrating all the great parts of the story that we've walked in that journey along the way. And so I've been reminiscing by pulling up pictures and you know, time hops and experiences that you've had over the years will pop up in a feed where you can see all those parts of the journey from way, way back. And so little pictures of them and cute little Halloween costumes have popped up. And for whatever reason, as I was preparing for this passage of scripture this week, a story popped up in the life of my oldest from when she was very little and we were reading out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a fantastic Bible. It's a great Christmas gift. We're coming up on that season. So if you've got somebody in your life, a young parent, or maybe you're becoming a parent, you need a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible because it's fantastic stories, Old and New Testament, that not only tell the truth of what happened in those moments, but they also point to Jesus. In fact, as parents, you, you read the introduction to that book and what you realize is that every single story that they present points to Jesus. And we're reading some Old Testament story at one point in her little life. And I don't remember even exactly which one we were reading, but I do remember the moment where she said, daddy. And I thought, wait, what is it? And so I said, what is it, Lily Kate? And she said, did you recognize that Jesus was in this story? And I said, yes, I did. (laughs) And I'm glad that you did. Because every single one of these stories, old and new, point us to a truth about Christ and his activity and his call in the world. And so what 
we want to do is gather together today as a people who get to see that, who get to recognize that these old stories point us to a very current reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. When you look at the battle of Jericho and the people being called to go to the city and looking at it and realizing that it was completely fortified and if they were gonna go in, they were gonna have to go over or around because God was going to have to do something with the wall that separated. And that's a picture of Christ because it wasn't just a physical wall that had to come down in order for God's people to receive God's promised blessing. There's a spiritual wall that has to come down in my life and your life for us to receive the fullness of God's blessing. And we look at the New Testament. New Testament prescribes for us exactly what happened, that Jesus Christ burned down that wall of hostility that separated us from God so that we could go in and enjoy the fullness of his presence. And you see that in the battle of Jericho, pointing us to Jesus, knowing that the people didn't tear down that wall brick by brick. God tore down that wall. And as weird as the instructions may have been for them to march around six times and on the seventh day, march around seven times and then trumpet shout and horns blast and all the cool things happen. Like they did very little in order to accomplish the wall coming down. God did it all. You and I do very little, if anything at all, to bring down that wall that separates us from God. Jesus Christ did that full work. And so then we land in chapter seven today. And so if you wanna turn your Bibles there to chapter seven and chapter eight of the book of Joshua nestled in the Old Testament, we're gonna see another picture of Jesus. And it's a different battle for us. Because I like, and maybe you like too, I like to go to the victory stories in the Bible. I like to go to the celebration stories in the Bible. And that's why the Battle of Jericho appears in our kids' Bibles, because it's a victory story. It's a celebration story. It's a happy story of God doing something that we cannot do for ourselves. And we celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise as he takes his people forward to where he told them they could be. It's a shout. It's an exciting moment. I like to avoid the hard stories. I like to avoid the difficult ones, especially if they're going to point out something that's bad about me. But we can't just take the good parts. We take the difficult ones too. And right in the book of Joshua chapter 6, starting with verse 18, God gives the people an instruction that when they take the city, there was one thing that they were supposed to avoid, one thing that they were supposed to do. Chapter 6 verse 18 says this, but keep away from the devoted things. Keep away from the devoted, it's like a childhood game, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction. Here we are focusing on the destruction of the city of Jericho so that we can take possession of it. But listen, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction in taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to the destruction and bring trouble on it. Those devoted things, that's a Hebrew word, kerem, and it literally means things that are under the ban. Some of your Bible translations actually say that, detestable things, things that are under the ban, things that are not supposed to be engaged with by the people of God, things that they're supposed to stay away from in order to be fully devoted to God. These were things that were connected to the Canaanite practices of idol worship. They had some nasty practices of idol worship going on in these cities, some things that the people of God definitely needed to ban and to stay away from. And in the middle of that promise, in the middle of that goodness, God gives them one instruction and then we land on chapter seven. The walls come tumbling down and then it says this, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. The carom, the things that were under the ban, the things that were detestable, the things that they were supposed to stay away from, they were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. It says Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of them. 
So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. That word anger is the same word for Hebrew nostril. You know how you look when you get mad. Maybe we don't know how you look when you get mad right now because you got a mask covering it up, but you know how you look when you get mad. It says the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I can imagine him flaring his nostrils in that moment. It says in verse 2, now Joshua, he sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. This was part of their pattern. They spied out lands all over the place. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not weary the whole army for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed. That means defeated by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. You look at this people group. They had just come off the heels of this incredible victory where they saw the power of God destroy a city in front of their very own eyes and they took this city and now they're feeling really confident. How many of you on the, uh, the heels of a victory or a really good moment in your life feel pretty confident going into the next challenge and you think, okay, I got this. That's what the people said. They said. We don't need the whole army. We can just send a few thousand guys. We've got this covered. We don't even need the power of the Lord. Listen, right now, you just take a break, God. Put your heat, feet up, take a rest, have something to eat, watch some Netflix. We don't need you in this moment. We don't need to seek your face. We don't need to seek your counsel. This problem is a little bit smaller. We can take care of this one on our own. And you see what happened. They sent in just a few thousand of their soldiers. They were routed by the men of Ai and 36 at least of them lost their lives. And so the hearts of the people who were prideful and thought they had it on their own now melted in fear became like water. It says in verse six, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground. That's a symbol of mourning. It's a symbol of repentance. And so he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. I do that. Like whenever something doesn't go my way, whenever I lose, whenever I fail, whenever I'm rejected, I immediately shake my fist at God. I'm like, why, Lord, did you even bring me here in the first place? I just, like, I just should have stayed over there to begin with. And that's what the people did. Like whenever we come up against a closed door or a difficult circumstance or a battle that we face, we're immediately like, why, God, did we even try in the first place? Because we don't like defeat. We don't like disaster. We don't like the hard parts of Scripture. We want to stay on the victory page. But here they were defeated. He says in verse 8, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. Now our reputation is at stake. Everybody's gonna hear about this and they will surround us and they will wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? All right, Lord, show us what you're gonna do now because we are just up a creek. There is no paddle. This is disaster. We went from being a people who trusted completely in God and did this crazy instruction to walk around a city. And now all of a sudden we're people that think that we can do it on our own, which we can't. And now we're questioning whether or not God can do it because he didn't. 
What are you going to do now, God? Our reputation's toast. The people are going to surround us, and then you're not going to have a people anymore. What are you going to do then? And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, and they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. Stand up. See, Israel was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. So therefore, they could not stand in front of their enemies. What does it mean to be unfaithful? We have definitions for that. We have a definition of what it means to be unfaithful in marriage. We have definitions of what it means to be unfaithful in life. We have definitions of what it means to be unfaithful in your workplace. We have definitions of what it means to be not fully devoted in whatever commitment you make. That's the Hebrew word me'al, and it literally means to act treacherously. It's characterized by betrayal. And you know me'al because you've been betrayed. You know Ma'al because someone has broken a promise to you. You know Ma'al because someone has been unfaithful to you in some sort of context, in some sort of page in your life. Ma'al means to commit a trespass or a sin. It's an offense to Almighty God and to the people that you're in relationship with. And here's what we do as a people, and maybe I should just speak for it myself. Here's what I do as a person, and as a pastor, and as a husband, as a father. I trend towards maximizing the may-al in other people and minimizing the may-al in me. I, I trend towards maximizing the unfaithful, treacherous, sinful acts in other people and minimizing the unfaithful, treacherous acts in me. I think that's why Jesus looked at his disciples and he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount and the crowd that had gathered there that day. And I think that's why he asked this question, hey, how come you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own? I do that. I think that we as a people trend towards maximizing the sin that other people, if you don't believe me that people trend towards maximizing the sin in other people, maybe it's because you don't have a Facebook page. If you have one, then you should just go and scroll for a little while. And what you will see is a people who maximize in exposing and highlighting and condemning the sins in other people and minimizing and, and, and underplaying the sins in their own life. And if you don't have a Facebook page, then I salute you. You shouldn't go out and get one. But if you do, what you're going to find is a whole group of people. And if you don't think that there are people out there maximizing the sins in other people and minimizing the sins in their own life, it's probably because you're one of those people out there maximizing the sins in other people's life and minimizing those in yours. Go down your feed and, and tell me what's easier to highlight somebody else's mistakes, somebody else's transgressions, somebody else's failures, somebody else's systemic difficulty in life. And, and we easily want to excuse our own and we expect other people to excuse ours too. There's some really difficult, um, there are some uncomfortable truths about sin, some significant ones that make us uncomfortable. And the first is that individual sin, an individual sin leads to a community consequence, that other people will pay the price for the mistakes that you and I make in life. And some of y'all say, amen, I know, Nick Allen, because I'm paying the price for somebody else's sin. 
and somebody else is paying the price for mine. That's, that's present in the life of this community. When one guy, Achan, goes and takes some of the forbidden things, what did he take? You go on and you read the rest of the part of that story of Scripture where they bring all the clans and all the families and all the men of each tribe together and, and they begin to explore and investigate which one broke the commands of God in this moment. And it's revealed that Achan, the son of Zip, that's the guy who did it. Well, guess what he took? He took a Babylonian robe and some silver and gold. We were thinking, well, big deal. Why is the whole community now losing a battle because this one guy did one bad thing. Why did 36 people lose their lives because this one guy did one bad thing? And it's because this kind of sin always has consequences for other people in life. It's not just you. Individual sin always leads to a community consequence. Achan disregarded God's instructions in Joshua chapter 6 verse 18 and now the community is paying the price. Even a single act of unfaithfulness, even one single act of unfaithfulness can bear a corporate responsibility. God said in verse 11, Israel has sinned. Not not Achan, not one dude, not one member of one family of one clan, but Israel, the whole nation has sinned. It says they, not he, they have violated my covenant. They, not he, which I commanded them to keep. They, not he, have taken some of the devoted things. And that's the essence of Adam and Eve's sin passed down from generation to generation. They were literally living in the luxury of a garden and they were given complete and total free reign of every single tree that grew in the garden with one simple instruction. Hey, I'm giving you all of this, but you can't have this. Well, what'd they do? They ate that one thing. Because of that one act of rebellion, the idea of rebellion has been passed down throughout all generations to where you and I take hold of that same rebellion. We don't understand the fact that the consequences of our individual rebellion bear a communal consequence for everybody else that we're in community with. It's Western for us to think otherwise. The idea that our sins shouldn't have those kinds of consequences because the enemy's out there lying to us in a spirit of moral relativism saying that you get to pick your sins and you get to pick what's right and good for you and you get to pick your sins and you get to pick what's right and good for you and it should never cross over and conflict with the other person because we think that we ought to be able to do it our own way left to choose our own path and who dare tell us that their right has to be my right and that their wrong has to be my wrong it's the sin of the western world and it's the worst part of the freedom that we experience in America because we think we ought to be able to choose that. We think we ought to be able to go out and do you and I do me and you not be able to tell me that me doing me somehow infringes on you doing you. Like it's a challenge. It's a challenge when we believe that individual sin can't lead to a community consequence. We don't take responsibility for the other people around us. It's Difficult when we think that even a single act of unfaithfulness can bear a a, a very corporate responsibility. And did you know that any sin, any level of sin, and we're the ones that want to categorize sins and say that some are worse than others. And anytime we do that, we end up failing because what we want to say is that, oh, to commit a murder is the same as to commit a lie. And that makes murder not seem quite as bad as lying. But what we really ought to do is to say, to tell a lie is the same as to commit murder. To tell that lie is the same as to take 
Like it's not that they're all minimal and simple on the same plane, it's that they're all maximum and deserve the maximum penalty of death. And what we have to understand, and it's a difficult, uncomfortable circumstance about sin, is that any level of sin makes it impossible to stand. Any level of sin makes it impossible to stand, to stand before God and to stand before this community around us unashamed of God. Because then we get called hypocrites and then we get called liars. And in those moments, we often are. Habakkuk 1.13 says that your eyes, talking to the Lord, your eyes, O oh God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. There's a barrier because of sin between us and God and a barrier because of sin between us and the rest of the world. And this one guy's sin in this moment is the reason why the Israelites could not stand up against their enemies, the people of Ai. But there's Jesus in this story because we get to turn the page. There's Jesus in this story because we get to turn the page. You continue reading in chapter 7, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through like Lord of the Rings, or it's going to go through like a Harry Potter novel, it's going to go through like the Chronicles of Narnia, these crazy intense battle sequences that happen, and you should go back and finish chapter 7 and read all of chapter 8. We're going to stop at the Jesus part, because when you and I turn the page from our sin, we, we turn the page from the consequences of it, when we turn the page from the fact that we all, because of our sin, deserve death, when we turn the page on our past and our failures and our mistakes and the pain that we've caused and the pain that we've endured, what we're left with is Jesus. It says in chapter eight, starting with verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. When I turn the page on my failure, there's God saying, hey, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Take the whole army with you. You know, the people in their pride said, hey, we can do this on our own. We only need a couple thousand men. But the Lord in his wisdom says, take the whole army with you. Go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho. Remember that victory? You're going to have that again. I, I know yesterday was terrible, but you're going to have this promise again. You're, you're going to do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city gate. Do you see the grace of God in this moment? Because that's, where Jesus is? Do you recognize him on this page? His unmerited favor that they did not deserve in this moment. They didn't deserve it before and they certainly don't deserve it now. I'm looking at you, Aiken. They, they certainly didn't deserve it now. 
And then I'm going down here as a parent and I'm like, okay, so wait a minute. The first time they were taking one of these cities, they got to go to Jericho and they were told, hey, you can have this whole city. It's gonna be a weird circumstance when you get it. Just follow me here. I'm gonna get you to march around for a little bit. I'm gonna get you to blow some trumpets. The walls are gonna come tumbling down and then you're gonna take it and it's gonna be yours. Like, that's, like, like weird instructions aside, hey, you get to go in and you only have one rule, one thing that you're supposed to avoid, those devoted things, those detestable things. You just burn those. Don't take a part of those. Those belong to the Lord. They belong to the pile. Don't engage that in your life. Here's one rule and they can't, they sin. Achan sins and they, they can't follow through with that one rule. And so round two, they get to take another city. God says, don't be discouraged. I'm gonna give you this city too. Here comes another victory. But this time you can just have some of the stuff. That's not how I parent my children. Like when they break my trust, I don't take away the rule. I add more. I make them earn it back. Like if I was the Lord in this moment, I wouldn't have been like, okay, by the way, you failed that first time with that one rule. So this time I'm gonna let you go ahead and have the victory, but this time there just will be less rule. That is not how I parent those Allen children, am I right? There's three of them, they ought to be able to tell you. When they step outside the bounds, I add more bounds and I add bigger consequences to the bounds, weightier consequences, more fear. Like I want them to fear me, you know, like I... That's not what God does. He, he instead gives them grace. Do you recognize Jesus on this page? Do, do, you, do you recognize Jesus at work in the world? Do you recognize the sound of his voice in your life? Hey, listen, I know you've made mistakes. Hey, I know you've messed up. I know you thought you could do it on your own with less of a battle plan, but hey, it was a bad day. It was a failure, but don't wallow in it. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Stand up. And let me show you what I can still do with you. And this time, I'm going to bless you even more. It's a grace that we don't deserve. It's a grace that we don't merit. It's a gift of God that we can't fully understand unless we've received it. There's some significant truths about sin that make us uncomfortable but there's ultimately an answer to that sin that ought to make us grateful and when it makes us grateful it ought to make us responsive to God's plan and his purpose for our lives take the whole army I look at the moments in my life when I, when I thought that I had it on my own, when I thought that I could do it in my own strength, when I thought that I could accomplish God's will even in my own power, and I'm thinking, I've got this, I don't need you. Woe to me. Or, or, or I've got this, I don't need them. Woe to me. This is a, a difficult season of life, and, and I tread as a pastor and, and as, a, as a believer and as a family member because I've got people in my life, not necessarily here in this room, because look, you're here and I'm excited and it's great to see you, but I've got people in my life, in, in my family, and here in this state and out of state, and friends and people in community that we literally do life with. And I'll just go ahead and tell you some of those people, and look, there's always those people, right? Some of those people are, are not engaged in church and not engaged in Christian community and not engaged in Bible study fellowship because of COVID. 
And if I were to ask them right now, they would say, oh, Nick, you know, we just can't do it right now because, you know, COVID. And I get the fact that there are people, I get it maybe more than some because we have one living with us. Like, I get that there are immunocompromised people. I get that there are people with differing degrees of pre-existing conditions that would make COVID more of a harsher reality. But I'm talking to my family members when they're afraid of one thing because of COVID, but yet going out and living their lives on the sports fields and the restaurants and the airlines, something doesn't add up. And I'm not here to call anybody out, except maybe my sister. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, like, no, no, no condemnation. But in some ways, what we've seen and what I do believe we will continue to see, it's going to be a harsh reality for the life of the church. This is the, the voice of the, the prophet coming at us and saying, okay, this mountain that we've had to climb is going to make some people step back. And what they're going to say is, we can do it on our own. We, we don't need the fellowship of Christian community. We don't need the, the, the corporate act of the body. My, my kids, I've got that covered. I don't need what's going on upstairs in kids' ministry, my own community Bible. Like I, can, I can go and I can, I can do that on my own, but what the Lord says, you need the whole army. Passage of Scripture, Paul writes to the community, put on part of the armor of God. No, he says, put on the whole armor of God. And God himself looks at Joshua in this moment. He says, take the whole army. You cannot do it on your own. So somehow, some way, in spite of the challenges, we've got to be a people who figure out that we need each other and that it takes all of us to accomplish God's will and purpose for us and that even one of us stepping outside the bounds of it can cause disastrous consequences for all of us. And yet in the middle of it, there's grace. As his own response and answer to our sin should make us grateful, it should also make us responsive to his plan and his purpose for our lives. You go ahead and read the rest of chapter 8 this week. Don't delay. Like, go back and look at it and see this crazy circumstance of how the whole army was able to take the city of Ai. And then closing that out, we get to this moment where Joshua built, in verse 30, on Mount Ebal, to the Lord an altar, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it, how? According to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. We're challenged and encouraged and admonished to live our lives according to what is risen. Our, our, our written. Our lives should be built according to what is written. And so this idea of taking, like Achan, that which doesn't belong to us, this idea, like Achan, of desiring and coveting that which was no good for him, this idea of holding back from God that which he deserves and that which we are supposed to abandon and get rid of so that we can be fully devoted to him. I like this John Piper quote. I'm probably going to say it next week too. You guys get a preview. It's this. The most powerful and painful acts of radical obedience the, the most powerful and painful acts of following God in whatever kind of crazy, strange, march around the city story, take the whole army with you kind of experience that he wants to give us, the most powerful and painful, it'll cost you something, acts of radical obedience, beginning with remorse for our own sin. Beginning with the idea that we reject disobedience. Beginning with the idea that we reject being only halfway devoted to God. Beginning with the idea that we want to follow the whole counsel of this word. Beginning with the idea of remorse for our own sin must be motivated by an awakened taste 
for the pleasure of God. He's so good, I just want more of him. He's so gracious, I just want to follow him. So in a moment, when you look at the sin of Achan in chapter 7 and the battle of Ai in chapter 8, we're left with a, a, a question to ask ourselves, am I holding back devoted things from him? If I am, then it may be because I'm not fully immersed in who he is. Are you? Are you holding back devoted things? Things that you should have abandoned a long time ago from him? Are you holding on to other devoted things instead of giving your heart of full devotion completely over to him? Because if you're not fully devoted, then you may not be fully immersed. It says in verse 34 that after Joshua read all the words of the law, after he built that altar, he read all the words of the law. And this is the part that I really, really like. He read the blessings and the curses. Y'all, I just want to read the blessings some days. But he read the blessings and the curses just as it is written in the book of the law. History records for us the fact that Thomas Jefferson took a razor blade out of his own Bible. Not out of his own Bible, but he took a razor blade to his Bible. And he cut out certain pieces of scripture and then pasted them together in what became known as the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can't cut and paste this with your life. And we laugh at that and we scoff at that. But the truth is, even without the presence of a razor blade, we do that. We cut and paste. We pick the parts that we like and that are easy. And we avoid the parts that we don't like, the ones that are difficult. And like Augustine said, when we look at the word of God and believe only what we like and disbelieve only what we don't like, we, it's not the word of God that we believe, it's ourselves. Heather Zimple is a discipleship pastor in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church. And you guys who've been with me for any length of time have heard me talk about her before, but she writes that we look at the word of God like a yearbook. We want to find all the places where our picture is on the page. And guess what? My picture is on all the pages where I look good and I sound good, and I feel good, and there's blessing, and there's promise, and there's hope. I want to avoid the parts that talk about challenge, and difficulty, and disaster, and the fact that I'm not always as fully devoted and obedient to God as I would like to make out. We need the whole army. We need the whole council. We need the whole scripture. And every single part of it, we ought to be able to look at it and answer the question, you recognize Jesus in there? Lily Kate, that that oldest kid of mine, um, she wrote recently in a a homeschool assignment, yeah, we're those people, we homeschool our kids, in a homeschool assignment, some little portion of her personal autobiography, and I asked her this morning, I often don't ask my kids if I can tell stories about them, because I feel like, I mean, you're my kids and I pay for you to live, so it's just my right to do it anyway, but but like something personal that she wrote, I, I did get permission to share She writes this, on the first Sunday in 2018, we went to the new Nashville campus of Rolling Hills Community Church. It was called Belmont Heights. It started out similarly to the Nolansville campus with far fewer people and even a smaller space. And on a typical Sunday, I would wake up around six and serve at the church until 12. Every week we would set up and tear down all the tables and the banners and we would put out donuts and coffee. Y'all miss the donuts and coffee, don't you? Life felt super normal and nothing seemed like it would ever change. And in my mind, I would soon be back with my friends at the other campus. You see, when we left the Franklin campus of Rolling Hills in order to be a part of the Nashville campus of Rolling Hills, her final Sunday in Franklin, she was in a group of fifth graders that outnumbered the people in this room. Just fifth graders. And then we took her to 
a whole church where birth to death, they didn't outnumber the people in this section. And so it was a little bit of a culture shock, but all along she thought, well, eventually after we help this one get started, we'll go back to the normal life at the Franklin campus. The end of winter came quickly, she writes, and I expected to be done with the merger in the summer. And while I enjoyed serving at the new campus, I was counting down the days until I would be able to go back and see my friends. Sometime in the middle of April, my parents sat us down and told us that we would be changing campuses altogether, and I realized that I wouldn't be going back to my original church family. The Belmont Heights campus would become my permanent church home. The most terrifying part of that realization was the fact that not only would we be moving campuses and moving houses, it was the fact that I would be starting middle school with a brand new youth group. Moving meant starting over. August came quicker than I thought it would, and we had already sold our house, and the long process of getting settled A couple of weeks into the month, I started going to middle school youth group on Sunday at the new campus, and that's when it got harder. It's then when I learned the value of true church and of real friendship. Our middle school started with only three members. We met in a small cold room with an AV crate as a table, and by the end of the year, I was the only student left. A few months later, the class ended altogether, and we as a church campus spent an entire year with no middle school and high school ministry outside of my one kid in middle school. And so every Sunday she was a part of an intergenerational body of Christ, but did not have that connection to other middle school and high school kids at church. She writes, I'd always had a youth group to look forward to every week, and that made losing it so much harder. I learned that sometimes you don't realize the value of something until it vanishes. That summer we tried to create some special experiences for her. She went to her very first youth group camp with the Franklin campus, and I took her on a mission trip with JMI to the country of Brazil where she got to experience some pretty incredible things. And she writes, while I learned a lot of things on these trips, the most important thing that I learned was that Christ is enough for me. And she didn't have to hold on to what could have been a devoted thing, but that he himself would overflow her cup and fill her with satisfaction and comfort. And she got the whole army. Since then, things got easier. Listen. Because on September 8th, 2019, some of you were there, we gathered together back at Belmont and our church merged with another church. And one week later, the youth group started. 11 people came the first week and it was the start of something new. This year, in the middle of the chaos, our church merger created an opportunity to move into a newer, larger building. And our youth group, which has grown over the last year, now has a permanent space to meet every single week. And while every day brings a new, harder challenge. I'm looking at you, COVID. She writes, I know God is still working in my life. She recognizes Jesus in the story. And I want to know that I always navigate to the same and that you navigate to the same. Because I hear on good authority that COVID-19 is not going away and it may only get harder. But I recognize Jesus in it. We we're in the middle of an election. Tuesday's a big day. If you haven't already voted, I encourage you to go do so. I will not tell you how to do that, but I encourage you to go do that. It's tough. And I don't think that at the close of Tuesday, it's going to get any easier, but I, I recognize Jesus in it. Being a church in this community, this side of Nashville, in this part of our city, there is a hostility to faith in Christ and to Christians in general that makes this journey hard but I recognize Jesus in it and I see us walking in this room every single week as if we just watched the battle of Jericho happen before our eyes. 
And what God is still saying to us is, don't rest on that and think that you've got this because you need me and you need the whole army. And that's how we're going to see Jesus in this. That's how we're going to see Jesus in this. So are you holding back those devoted things? Are you holding on to things that should have been let go of a long time ago? And ready to link arms and, and, and walk forward to where he already is and where we recognize him working is going to take the whole of this, even the hard parts. And it's going to take the whole of this if we're going to go out and reach any of that for his name and for his glory. It's a blessing to be able to see Christ and to do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for the truth of your word. And, and God, more than anything else, what we pray is that we are a people who have been challenged and reminded to not be like Achan and hold tight to things we have no business holding on to. And to ultimately be a people who are willing to give you everything that you deserve. Help us to know that being fully devoted to you means taking the whole council and the whole army and looking for where Jesus is. God, help us to recognize him in our own stories and more importantly, help us to recognize him in this story so that we can celebrate the grace that we don't deserve but that we've freely been given and so that we can accomplish your purpose for our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jacob Scrimshaw, the Discipleship Pastor here at Rolling Hills. We are so glad that you've joined us today as we continue our series, Finish Strong. Today you'll hear from Pastor Nick as he teaches us from Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Now here's Pastor Nick.